Good afternoon, good morning, everyone, wherever you may be. My name is Adnan Shafi, and welcome to the ACS podcast. This is going to be our third episode of this Black History Month series. I'm really excited for this episode because we have an amazing guest with us today as well. We also have Jane accompanying us as well today. First of all, Jane, would you just like to give us a quick introduction about yourself and then we'll move on to Kelechi Okafor. So let's start with Jane. Hi, everyone. My name is Jane, Jane Chuku. I'm the Vice President for Graduate Students at Cardiff University Students' Union. Yeah, thank you for that, Jane. Um, Kelechi, would you just like to briefly, briefly introduce yourself? Tell us a bit about yourself. Um, your background, what you do, and also about your podcast as well. Uh, well, yeah, my name's Kalechi. I am an actor, director, writer, podcaster, and I have um, a pole dance studio in southeast London, Peckham, called Kalechnikov Studio. And yeah, I just got into podcasting. My podcast is called Say Your Mind. I got into it um, because I just thought that there, would, there was a necessity to have a space that I could share my thoughts that wasn't really being controlled the same way that it would be controlled otherwise, I guess, on social media. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I think podcasting, I totally agree with you. When it comes to podcasting, it's an excellent way for us to be able to discuss our thoughts and just get different perspectives from different people on the spot. It's almost like having sort of like a coffee table discussion about you know deep issues that are affecting the world today. And speaking of which, it's going to be a deep discussion today, guys. Obviously, we know it's Kalechi, she's experienced, she's well-read. So we're going to be asking the difficult questions as well today. We're going to be discussing Black History Month. We're going to be discussing Black identity, the diaspora, and we're also going to be ending off with NSARS as well. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Obviously, it's Black History Month. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about whether we even need a Black History Month within the Black community and also outside of the Black community. So, I mean, the first question is, first of all, do you think there is a necessity for Black History Month or should it just be like a global history month that is non-Eurocentric? Um, what are your general thoughts about that? And what is your response to the recent challenges that we've been facing uh, in terms of some people criticizing the month and saying that this is something we don't need at all. We need just, for example, they might want a white history month. I've heard stuff like that, or, you know, European history month. What are, what are your thoughts on that? I think that the reason that we even have um, um, these discussions in the first place are proof that we do in fact need um we do in fact need a Black History Month because until um, the general public are up to speed on history, so we can just generally collectively call it history, then yeah, we're gonna need a Black History Month to educate people on the aspects of um, our society that they've missed out on um, and they deliberately weren't taught. Um, and that's, you know, like I say, it's the deliberate to uphold certain systems and structures. Um, there's been a lot of miseducation and a lot of misinformation. So until we can find some kind of equilibrium where people have a general understanding, a good enough understanding of the part, for instance, that even Britain had to play in um, the way that the world has played out like Britain has a hand in how America is Britain has a hand in how a lot of the world currently is um, and until we understand that and understand how it's linked to black uh, people and the um, socioeconomic disparities and the um, social injustices that we see then yeah I, I definitely think that we all still need the month I, I totally agree with you 
And I would personally just say, especially for Black History Month, a lot of people have taken, I mean, in the last, okay, let's say in the last 100, 200, 300 years, there has been a deliberate, you know, whether even it's, it's an academic attempt or just generally a societal attempt to discredit Black history, especially in Africa in the pre-colonial period. And we've seen a deliberate miseducation of people by way of omission. So you're not teaching people things about um, the people that are going to be sitting right next to them in class or going to be doing business dealing with them. And I think the reason why it's so important to have things like Black history taught is because at the end of the day, this world is globalized. There's all kinds of people living in all different kinds of countries in all different kinds of conditions. And when you teach one group of people that our ancestors were great and the other ones were so uh, those the sort of forgotten in the, the books of history. I mean, what does that tell you about the current people who are living now? And it's all subconscious, right? So I just, de I definitely agree with you in terms of Black History Month. What's on your mind, Jane? Well, in recent time, there have been campaigns around decolonizing the curriculum and, you know, in terms of education and all of that. And there are lots of people that think this is not necessary as much, you know, based on what is being told, the history that is being told and going on now, it, everything, it seems fine. It seems okay. And well, it's been um, Black History Month kind of, it kind of generates different conversations around racism, colonialism, um, Holocaust and the rest of them. So it's almost like every single sector kind of have a different thing that they dive into when it comes to Black History Month. So on that note, I'm kind of, the question, I guess my question is, what do you think should be focused on most during Black History Month, what is the conversation supposed to be like? And in terms of um, Black History Month being taught, do you think Black History Month, um, Black History is being taught as much in schools as, you know, as other histories are being taught as much? I definitely think that um, Black History, to me, it's interesting. I don't actually think that Black History is being taught to the level or depth that it should be taught at simply because, um, of the implications that it would have for um, society. It would, the, the implications that it would have even for um, universities that are teaching them, schools that are teaching them and their complicity in, um, in you know, injustice. We're seeing numerous universities uh, coming forward with their reports about, or a few universities rather, coming forward with their reports of their part in um, the slave trade or how they've benefited from the slave trade, there'll be a lot of reckoning. And I think that that's the theme for me for this year in 2020, that there'll be a lot of reckoning for a lot of institutions. Because when we say institutionalized racism, it's not just a flippant term. It means something like literally words mean things, you know, and, and that's what we'll start to see. And the conversations will differ, as you've mentioned, Jane, based on the industry or the environment that that in um, the, you know that that discussion is taking place the kind of discussion I have about racism and microaggressions and all of those things that I have with the police is for instance different to the kind of conversation that I will have about racism and bias and everything that I'll have with another organization that would book me to do one of my like anti-racism um, presentations or keynote speeches it would differ because I need to hone it in as to how they are complicit so for instance if I'm talking to the police I'm talking about the disproportionate stop and 
and search rates. I'm talking about the, um, you know, disproportionate sentencing that black men and boys face, um, the disproportionate force that's used against black men and boys and where that's linked to. Obviously, we're still going to come back to the same thing. The same basis is going to be, OK, let's look at Carolus Linnaeus in 1735 when he came up with, um, you know, wrote Systema Naturae, where he told us about the Homo Europaeus and the Homo Afer, and how from then we've had this categorization for whiteness and blackness and what that means. And everything else plays out from there. And we kind of veer off depending on which industry we're talking about. But we still have to come back to the fact that race was constructed as a means of oppression for no other reason other than to oppress. So when we're talking about decolonizing curriculums, you, you're going to decolonize a curriculum that's been taught by institutionally racist, um, you know, um, organization. How? You can only decolonize it so far because their interest is still to uphold um, whiteness. So I just think that when we are having these conversations, there is only so far that we can go having conversations, I guess, in the mainstream within um, institutions and everything else, because at some point it's going to be a bit too much for the institution because well, the only thing that we're still going to come back to is that a lot of this stuff needs to be dismantled and we have to start again and who's willing to give up their privilege in order for everyone to start again and, and be on more equitable footing. Yeah, and I think one thing that really speaks volumes for me is the fact that racism to a large degree, you will see in the early sort of periods, you know, even predating sort of slavery before that was starting to get introduced before they're deciding, you know, this was, you know, something that was really sponsored by academics. There are papers that have been published by Cambridge, by Oxford, you know, by all these major universities that we know as these big names, right? These are the leaders of academics and they were racist, right? The leaders in our field, for example, like law, right? They were probably also racist. And I think that people would say that, oh, now Adnan, you're going into it too deep. There's no such thing as going into it too deep because the foundations are literally based on white supremacy. And I think one thing that you need to realize when you're studying a subject, for example, even something like law, there are certain presuppositions that you have when you're building up the law that come from certain mindsets. Right, and that is inherent of certain people, right? So what you see is that the discourse on things like politics, the discourse on things like multiculturalism has been inadvertently like, you know, colonized by, you know, a white supremacy model, right? To push forward this ideal of, first of all, like, you know, the, the idea that, you know, for example, European styles of politics are superior to other styles of politics. And I think this is, these are all things we need to think about. And I totally agree with you, Kalechi. I mean, I think my question would probably be then, how do we practically look into the academic world, for example, and start to sort of bring new perspectives of that? Because at the end of the day, it's unfortunate, but we have to take a totally instrumentalist perspective and say that, yeah, we still have to use these philosophers because the large wealth of literature has actually originated from them. But how do we begin to sort of give our own perspective as Black peoples and uh, contribute that not just to the academic world, but the actual society itself? I think that we are already doing that by this podcast existing, by um, my podcast existing, by, you know, um, the, the, the way that we've all used social media. Social media has allowed for, um, you know, a, a globalization, a kind of like um, 
a mass kind of mobilization of blackness, I would say, in a way that we've never seen before. I know that during, like, for instance, the Black Panther movement and the civil rights movements and things like that, that there was connections uh, with, you know, of the diaspora with each other. But that was only to a certain degree because we didn't have social media to be able to almost instantly connect with each other. Whereas we have those things now and you're seeing that playing out in a way that we are righting the wrongs of how we have been presented and perceived throughout history. Um, we're seeing more things being done. We're doing more things ourselves in terms of the um, in terms of creatively what we are producing, what we are consuming, we are changing the narrative simply by existing and simply by seeing each other. I think to uh, preoccupy ourselves um, solely focusing on institutions is a distraction because the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. So we can go and gain all of the knowledge, all of the PhDs, all of the things but that's still not going to do anything to the institution because we're using its own tools. So we have to think outside of those kind of paradigms and um, utilize the different tools that we have, the cultural tools that we have, um, you know, our individual gifts and use those things to have a conversation outside of what institution is. Because like we said, it can only go so far. We are re-educating each other by the things that we're posting on social media. There are, so, there are numerous accounts to follow, you know, numerous podcasts to listen to where we're hearing a different perspective other than the one that we've been given. And ultimately that's why I started Say Your Mind because to me it was important that it went down in history that a black British woman had this perspective and it would you know with all of the expletives that I use with the fact that I utilize tarot and all of these things like existing in my individuality and making it clear that blackness is not monolithic but at the same time there is a thread there is a narrative of our um, experiences that we must honor and we must amplify so simply by us doing these things simply by us putting our voice out into the world and it being documented digitally we can't be erased not in the way that they've um, managed to burn documents and erase us for centuries yeah thank you so much for that perspective and um I, I definitely i think it's powerful when you mentioned you know the master's tools can break down the master's house and i think yeah to anyone who's listening like um obviously if you're a black person your identity in and of itself is something that is political. It affects the people around you and you will be treated based on that in a lot of places where you go. So I would say that when you have that opportunity, yeah, as Kalechi said, you need to stand up and you need to speak up in the best way that you think possible, right? Whether it comes to things like art, whether it comes to something like a podcast, whether it comes to writing articles, because you're actually adding to the discourse in a way that has not been done before. And I think this is where, for example, people like Franz Fanon come in, you know, writers, uh, such as that W.E.B. Du Bois, like all these major writers that decided to shift the narrative because they realized that they had to actually put in their own perspective to actually make a dent in this white supremacy like that has been sort of built through all this literature that is essentially built on those white supremacist foundations. Yeah, and I'm pretty much to add to what you have already said, Kelechi, the, the need to, for us to amplify our voice individually, it's it fits back into what I've always said about you know, the fact that there is no one black story, no one black voice and no one black experience. And as much, you know, there is always this necessity for everyone to kind of use their platforms to feed into the, the per perception of what blackness is and what black history is and what black history month is. And it kind of reads back into the idea of blackness and pro-black. Now, 
usually there are there there is this um massive um conception that pro being pro black black is like in, in the sense of um you have to love everything black culture black um and in, in the terms of lifestyle food and all of that and even in terms of your relationship now there have been you know arguments around if you are pro black and you yeah inter you are, you have like an interracial relationship is that like does that actually make you pro-black or are you going against being pro-black? So it twists back to what exactly is pro-black? What is blackness in your perspective? To me, as I've mentioned, blackness is, is literally, it's a mechanism. It's a mechanism of oppression and that's what it was intended to be. Um, we are existing within this mechanism of oppression, but we are literally very, very different um, people, all of us are very different people. We're not um, a monolith. So um, because of our collective um, experience of blackness within this structure that we found ourselves, we have a particular understanding of society, um, but even how we take that in, but based on um, geographically where we are, culturally where we are, um, we'll all interact with it differently. I think that people, because of the exceptionalism of what it means to be American, a lot of people look to the black American experience to be the one that dictates to everybody else what their blackness is and what their blackness can and cannot be. Um, and to me, I respect that perspective, but I don't necessarily, um, you know, hold on to it wholeheartedly because I'm very much um, aware of my Nigerianness and everything else. So I just feel like, um, as far as I'm concerned, leaving everybody to do what they want to do within their blackness, but understanding that the moment that they start to kind of politically align themselves with um, institutions that um, were solely created to oppress them, I think that that's wild. That's when you'd say, OK, you're not being pro-black. You're not really looking for equity in this situation. But outside of that, I don't really have an opinion. I think I want to sort of fan some flames here, right? Uh, because I've definitely encountered a lot of situations where some people deny blackness and uh, this is something that I'm going to just uh, throw into Kalechi a bit. There's some people that obviously come from the perspective that, for example, I'm Dominican, I'm not black, even though, for example, they'd be classified under, you know, this whole idea of racial hierarchy as black. And like, you know, there's the whole question of, you know, do people like Aboriginals have claims to blackness? Uh, do people who are living in Papua New Guinea have claims to blackness? Do Southern Indians who are really dark skinned, do they have a claim to blackness? And I think when I was thinking about this, right, I said, it's it's one of those unfortunate things because when people use, um, they use this sort of argument of like, you know, blackness is a social construct, therefore it's fake, therefore I'm not black, right? Or I choose not to identify as black. I usually tell people that, I mean, you can definitely think that, Right. But in terms of like from a pr pragmatic perspective, I would argue that, yeah, we don't necessarily this identity was forced onto us, but we're in a position where we can't afford to sort of divide and sort of, you know, just say that I want to be, for example, I mean, or ignore sort of how society is treating you, because it might actually lead you to sort of false assumptions of the way you might be treated in society. So, I mean, my question to you would be, um, what would be your response to the people who sort of deny their, their blackness. And for example, they choose not to even associate with movements like Black Lives Matter because it's none of their business in quotes, right? Um, what is your response to those people and how as black other black people are we meant to deal with that? Yeah, it's like I said um, earlier, to me, it's like when, for people to align themselves in that way with oppressive structures, 
there is clearly wounding there. There is clearly trauma there. There is clearly um, a lack of understanding of what can be done from the space, um, from the kind of, I guess, liminalities which blackness provides because we have to exist outside. This is why we talk about marginalized communities. We have to exist outside of what is considered mainstream, thus what is considered powerful. So if those are the things like you have so much space to be creative and we see it play out all of the time, we see um, even when we look at something like Twitter, Twitter would be nothing. Social media literally would be nothing without black people. Like the entertainment industries, if we look at the sciences, um, we look at medicine, medicine would be nothing without black people. So we are contributing sometimes um, uh, voluntarily and involuntarily. We are, it, our being is contributing to literally the evolution of mankind. There comes a point where we have to understand the power in that and stop um, internalizing the narrative that we're told that is otherwise. I don't ascribe to political blackness. So I don't think that everyone should just be lumped into that because that the fact of the matter is that there is a hierarchy and there is something as the model minority. And I find that South Asians, East Asians are not treated in the manner that like black people are. So um, to lump everyone together, I hate it. I don't. I understand that. I guess there was a purpose for it at some point, for, um, politically, especially in Britain. But there comes a point where you have to kind of put that to the side and understand that people have been able, um, communities have been able to um, kind of move so far ahead um, because of this model of political blackness, while still being very anti-black themselves. So just yeah I just kind of leave that there but when I look at for instance politicians like Sean Bailey um, or you know pers personalities like Sean Bailey and the kind of things that he says and he's very very conservative in his views I kind of just feel sorry for those sorts of people because whether you want to run away from blackness or not same with thing with Kanye whether you want to run from blackness or not, you can't outrun your blackness. You can't outrun this system. You can't outrun this mechanism. What you have to do, anything, if you're going to change anything, if you're going to find peace in anything, first there comes acceptance. You must accept that this is what has been constructed. This is what has been put in place. So how do you navigate through it? How do you live your life as fully and wholly as possible within it? Um, eventually hoping to like break out of it but you're not going to outrun it while everything is still the way that it is because ultimately all you're doing is um, compounding the narrative that blackness is terrible. Mm, that's that's a powerful perspective and I, I definitely uh, I think when you mentioned Kanye and Sean Bailey I mean and you see when a lot of people you know people just say that oh yeah you know uh, you're sort of trying to serve the, the the white man or like, you know, pick me massa, that sort of, you know, behavior. That, that's what people like, you know, say online and all that stuff. I think a lot of black people are hurt by that. But I think, yeah, sometimes you just feel sorry for people because what you realize is that when someone's denying their black identity, they somehow think that, for example, that uh, I call it black escapism. They're trying to sort of escape from the system in a different way, or at least, or they're trying to look for privilege from a different group, or they're trying to look for acceptance from a different group. Or like they might even think themselves that they're superior because of an ethnic difference and all this different stuff. So I personally tell people that, yeah, you have to look at it pragmatically. You may not like that this identity has been forced onto you, but this is um, this is essentially what's happened. And even like when it comes to something like, uh, you know, borders uh, on the African continent, those borders were not drawn by Africans. Right. But we decided in 1982 with the Organization of African Unity that we're going to sit there and accept this and work with what we have. And I think that's the same thing 
um, with, um, you know, when you're fighting systemic racism, like you really have to acknowledge that one, the system is there, two, that you are subject to that system, regardless of your opinions, your views, right? That is, that is something that is static, it will not change. And three, that you have to work together with other people who have also been subjected to uh, by this system, right, to actually dismantle it. And Jane, did you have anything else to add? Well, technically, yeah, I've, I've had similar experiences of, of meeting Black people that don't want to identify with the Black, like being identified with anything Black, basically, um, you know, they play the card of, you have to, you have to, they feel like they, there's a need to police yourself and there's a need to like have that white culture to, you know, to belong, to be accepted, to um, not, um, how like, just more like, join the conversation, be accepted as more. So you have to police some certain, um, some certain behaviors and some certain um, values and some certain, um, you know, peculiarity kind of, that kind of makes you an individual, makes you like different from them as much. And it kind of goes to, um, to my question about, I'm very certain that you have been interviewed like or, or, or by so many media houses and maybe predominantly they might be white. And I'm kind of asking how, how do you always feel like uh, you are being given that platform to, you know, be able to say everything that you have to say, or does it, does it ever feel like they are trying to guide the conversation, or they're trying to like um, make you say some certain things the way that they want to say? When you when you talk about white privilege, they want it feels like, oh, they want you to very much join the conversation, and they want you know for you to very much fit into the EDI concept of the organization, but. EDI does equality, diversity, inclusion um, of the of the company, but somehow they want to direct the conversation. Do you ever feel that way? Have you ever had the experience of that? And and basically, how 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 would I put it? How how would you advise anyone like in that um, space if you have ever had that kind of experience? How do you advise people to go about it? You know, being able to like acknowledge and accept the invitation. And still go for it and you know find a way to kind of redirect the conversation just in in the way that you want to have it and how you really need it like the truth to be how do you ever how do you do that how do you advise people to navigate on with that kind of scenario well to me i feel like i'm still figuring it out because every institution every organization has their own specific type of madness and there's this specific type of way um that's unique to them that they try to go about that specific uh type of violence um i've mentioned before some of the organizations that i've worked with you know they would uh, you know being i've been booked numerous times by them and then somebody else takes the lead on sorting out the um workshops and they go oh well they've used this person before so I'll just contact them and I'll use them too since you know the person before me has used them and then they probably come across my stuff on social media and they go oh god no so who have I just booked what are they going to say oh my god what if they're what they, what if they say something mean what if they say something rude so what we're seeing there is their own racism playing out, their own misogynoir playing out, because obviously I'm going to enter into this space, not as a professional, but as an angry black woman who's going to behave in a savage manner. So, so that's their um, bias coming forward. So for me, the best way that I've been able to kind of deal with this is to call it out when I see it. Um, I've had um, organizations say, oh, can we do, you know, I, I understand, um, especially in the age of the pandemic, all of us having to communicate as we are now through Zoom, for instance. But um, 
so we'll do one run through we could do a tech run but when you now want another tech run because you and you want me to run through word by word what I'll be saying no then we're not doing that because then I ask why is there the need why do you want me to do that because suddenly when you post to people why then they have to question themselves and nobody sits down long enough to question where their their motivations lie they don't and so the why do we need a second one suddenly everyone's flustered and then we have it out on the table whether anyone names it or not we have it out on the table that something isn't quite right here and trust isn't quite being placed um, in me as the professional that's leading these workshops because of blackness and isn't this the very reason that you wanted this diversity and inclusion workshop in the first place i'm not um, naive to the ways that we are um, used almost as you know in a tokenistic manner in a lot of these environments when i'm invited to write for publications my ego doesn't get me to the point where i think oh my god they're asking me because i'm just so kind of well versed at talking about these things because obviously there's that aspect i know what i'm talking about i also have to recognize that i'm a hyper visible black woman on in the online um, arena I'm known, I'm very well known. So if I write something, it's gonna get them a lot of hits. They're gonna look like they're doing wonderful work. They're gonna get lots of traffic because of my following. So it's a win-win for them. So then I have to start calling the shots in certain regards. If I'm gonna be here then, and I understand that you're using me, I too have to use you. So I'm not going to you know, accept a paltry fee for writing for you. This is the fee that I want because I know what you are going to get out of it. And suddenly when you start putting boundaries in, in place, you start seeing the racism like exacerbated like you see it more it's you know it's even more accentuated in those um situations because suddenly it's like oh well um we don't really have that in our budget and you know what exactly would we be getting we already know what you'd be getting we already know if you want us to spell it out we already know what you'd be getting and then suddenly i don't think you're worth it as a black woman becomes the main part of that narrative um, but then they have to check themselves because they know that that was the very reason that they reached out in the first place, because they know that you are worth it. But they were hoping they were hoping that I would take less, that I wouldn't realize my worth and I would take less, which is what I was doing before until I started realizing what white women were getting for writing less and, and making less sense. So the, we just have to assert ourselves, arm ourselves with the why. Why? Because until we start asking, posing these questions, people won't sit down and question why they're behaving in such a way. That is how we deal with um, the way that um, people want to kind of invite us in on a tokenistic level and still dictate to us how we should move. We have to ask them, why do you want to do that? Because suddenly they'll realise that they don't, they're, they're not as well-meaning as they first thought. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think, I mean, I really want to add a bit onto, you know, that idea of postering because I'm so sorry, but so many, especially after this year, right? After, you know, George Floyd passed away, he was killed, right? By that police officer. And like, you know, you have Ahmad Arbery, you have Breonna Taylor, you have all these different cases that are happening, right? What you end up finding is that, you know, now everyone's looking to get a poster black person, right? And I've seen this happening before, right? Uh, there's so many different organizations that are looking for that one black person, right? And even sometimes universities do this, 
right? You find that, okay, you know, we're going to actually have one black person in this photo, you know, you have to look in quotes diverse. And I think that, you know, a lot of these uh, institutions, they're turning diversity into, you know, you meeting a mark and it's no longer, you know, an actual commitment. You just want more people so you can meet a number, but when the students actually get there, you really don't care about their needs, right? You don't provide them with the adequate resources to be able to meet their needs. And you end up making an embarrassment of yourselves because you truly don't actually stand for ethnic diversity. You stand for looking good in front of a camera, right? Which is something that I feel is being done by a lot of these organizations, right? And I think now that we've talked a bit more about, um, you know, black identity, I wanna sort of shift the narrative a bit uh, because obviously there's been a lot between the diaspora and you know a lot of Africans as well, um, native Africans. But I just want to ask about blackness in relation to the African continent, right? I mean, there's a lot of politically charged terms that have been sort of normalized, and sort of these are the only words that we have to use, even in an academic sort of like state, right? You know, words like sub-Saharan Africa, all this different stuff, right? And obviously we have people from South Africa like Steve Biko talking about you know black consciousness and many different other authors like Franz Fanon deconstructing what black blackness actually means. So I think my question would be, and it's a bit of a complex one, right, is to what extent can we actually intertwine blackness with Africanity? Blackness is intrinsic to Africanity. I think it's been, it's interesting that, you know, we see authors like Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie say things like, oh, I didn't realise I was black until, you know, I came, you know, I left Africa and things like that. And we hear that said a lot. And the reason we hear it said a lot is because, yes, we're not faced with the, um, the juxtaposition of whiteness overtly. We're not faced with the explicit juxtaposition of um, whiteness when we, well, unless you're in South Africa or, you know, I don't know, Kenya and Zimbabwe, um, you're not faced with it so, so much. It's not so in your face um, in that way. So it's easy for someone who's from West Africa in certain regards to say, oh, I didn't realise I was black until, you know, I came, I, you know, I left Africa. The fact is, this is why I refer to Carolus Linnaeus earlier and Sistema Nature from 1735. I refer to that because this was part of the basis. This, this provided the basis the construct of blackness, the construct of Homo Europaeus in um, comparison to Homo afer, gave the justification for transatlantic slavery, for colonization. You know, that gave the justification. So the blackness happened before we, you know, before we realized. So when um, people talk about, oh, well, you know, I, I, I don't really see myself as, I didn't have to see myself as black on the continent. You may not have thought that you had to see yourself as black, but the fact that you're living in a country that is called Nigeria, that was, that's an amalgamation of different ethnicities is, a, is literally the result of blackness as a, as a mechanism. It's literally the result of that. And you mentioned it earlier about the borders that were put in place. The fact that there are lines, literal straight lines drawn across our continent is a clear example of blackness at play the fact that we can look at um you know southern africa and have people call um remix dutch africans is blackness at play we're looking at all of the areas in which there would have there would have been no colonialism there would have been no transatlantic slave trade if there wasn't already um a disparity between um, what was deemed as um, humanity for whiteness and lack of humanity for blackness we wouldn't have had any of this so when you know I understand when for instance um 
African-Americans say, you know, the rest of you can't claim the term black because you didn't experience chattel slavery. You don't know what it was like to do, you know, to go through our experiences. And I definitely understand and I empathize with what they are, you know, what they're trying to say and what they're experiencing. But I would always have to give them the counter argument that that would not have happened to you had blackness not existed before that the constructs had to exist to justify the violence. So until we start understanding the um, order in which things happened, we're all going to keep muddling ourselves up and thinking, oh, well, this person had lays a claim to this and that person lays a claim to that, when really what we should be looking at is the way that whiteness laid a claim on all of us. Yeah, that's, I mean, I never really thought of it that way, but you're totally, totally right. I mean, Blackness was an intrinsic part of the colonial experience or even just racial hierarchy uh, in general, right? And I think um, I would uh, I want to ask you a question about Africanity as well, because there are quite a few authors that have talked about this. I think um, there was one by the name of Muchi and there's also another one by the name of Ali Mazrui as well. And he talks about, you know, Africans of the blood and Africans of the soil. So essentially, Africans of the blood is mainly genetics and, you know, people would be classified as black. Africans of the soil are people literally who have just been born there and have grown up there, but they're not necessarily black. And some people have brought up the, the question, does that give, does this give, uh, for example, right, you know, if you're an African of the blood and an African of the soil, would that give you uh, uh, some more I'd say claim to African identity. And I think of, for example, North Africans who are sort of in the middle area, right? Do you think that there should be some sort of element of, should people be able to claim Africanity based on a certain rubric? Should people who are living on the continent in certain areas have a greater claim to Africanity than others? I think that these are all distractions like Toni Morrison said the very real function of racism is distraction when we start looking for differences differences that we search for are very much to me seems like a white supremacist patriarchal um, pastime where we're always trying to find the differences always trying to find the differences I understand um, you know Africanness of the blood and Africanness of the soil but what I would counter that again with those who we claim are African um, African by you know blood it wasn't a choice to leave it wasn't a choice to leave you know for millions of them it was not a choice to leave some so many died on the middle passage it was not their choice to go so were it left to them like at the end of the day we'll all, no matter where we die no matter where our bodies are buried I feel like we'll always be Africans of the soil because that is where we started we didn't ask to be displaced we didn't ask to be removed so when I look at the entire continent I just think to myself everybody is experiencing some kind of trauma I mean I can't personally speak for somewhere like Ethiopia that's like I think the one country that didn't have to experience this but they experienced different violences you know so I just look at it and think that everybody's going through their own trauma but the people who are responsible primarily to me would be France and the UK nobody did colonialism the way that France and the UK did and so we look at all of the places that hurts on the continent of Africa you know like Wilson Shara's uh, uh, poem you know I asked you know um, the map where does it hurt it said everywhere everywhere there's hurt everywhere whether by soil whether by blood there's hurt everywhere because when we start looking like um, who has a claim to Africa based on who's grown up there who's lived there you're going to tell me 
that a white South African has more claim to Africa than I do because I went to go and live in Britain. I will argue that all the way down to the ground that that is not possible. Because somebody chose to come over and the other person had no choice but to go. Yeah, these are these are all valuable <clears throat> points. And I believe this is possibly even a whole different podcast that we can have <clears throat> about Black and African identity. Definitely interesting. And uh, Jean, I believe you also had something to add to this. Yeah, very much do. I know, I know when we started this Black History Month, right, there were um, so many conversations around what it exactly means and, and, you know, in the terms of if it is necessary. And there were so many, uh, you know, the very few people I reached out to the very first time was about, oh, we, we, we don't have any lived experiences with this and, and, you know, how can we add to the conversation and how can we, how can we channel this and all of that. And, you know, at the most part, I've always had the mind that based on the experience, do you, do you actually believe that you, someone have to have a lived experience of, of, of struggle to kind of understand struggle? Because I've always wondered um, if the lived experience, I've, is this something that, um, that is being said to like not be part of the conversation? Or, or do you feel like it's something that um, is justifiable? Like, oh, you don't have a lived experience with this. So that's, that's fine. You, you might not, you should be excused from the conversation. You should be excused from talking about, you know, white privilege and all of that. Or do you, do you feel that it's something that, that is being said just, you know, to avoid the conversation necessarily, not, not just because there's no lived experience, but it just not, it doesn't hit close to home. So that's, that's just the case. It doesn't hit close to home. Do you think that's the case? think that for anybody when we have these conversations about lived experiences and things like that it's um it's a very uh well-wielded tool of um whiteness and thus white privilege to only understand something when you have been able when you've had a chance to embody it this is why i'm strongly against people for instance oh, I'm going to be homeless for 24 hours. I'm going to sleep, you know, outside for 24 hours to raise money for people who are experiencing homelessness. Why can't you just raise money regardless? Why do you need to go and sleep on the street to understand what they're going through? Can you not process that? Can you not process that simply by looking at another person? What is it for to vacation in struggle, to vacation in suffering? You will never have the experience because you can leave at any time. So when we see documentaries being done, and there was a documentary where a white woman um, a few years back, what, gave, they gave her a prosthetic nose and gave her some like really deep fake tan and put her in a hijab so she could experience what it was like to be um, a Muslim woman. And to me, that was just incredibly racist because it's just why, why did she need to wear the hijab and do the whole prosthetic nose and just look really oddly grotesque? Why did she need to do that in order to understand the experiences of um, you know, Muslim women. And this is why I created Sally in HR because Sally in HR is that white woman, is that uh, well-meaning quote unquote white woman who wants to understand what's going on, but simply can't just listen because her white privilege is literally blocking her ears. So she needs to, and her eyes. So she just needs to be able to like step into um, other people's situations and then pop out of it and then garner um, and glean a little bit of an understanding. But even then, actually that's problematic because the fact that you could leave means you could always think to yourself oh it wasn't that bad it wasn't that bad you know there yes it's a bit tough for them but it wasn't that bad which is why um, I appreciate um, 
experiments like uh, uh you know jane elliott's where she um does the brown eyed blue eyed project and you see how white people kick against that when she tried to do it in britain she said britain was the worst experience she's ever had of trying to do that exper um, experiment where she gets a group of people in the room and she says you with brown eyes you with blue eyes you're now separate and you um are more superior to this group of people the white people that took part in that experiment hated it but the reason that she struggled to do it in britain is because britain doesn't want to talk about racism everyone wants to do a stiff a stiff upper lip and pretend that racism isn't a factor when actually it could it, it really um it's at the helm of everything that we de deal with in this society. Racism is entrenched within everything from when we even men mentioned law earlier. English law is racist by design. So when and then we then go further afield and look at European law, European law bringing us, um, you know, um, human rights and things like that might look, um, you know, might look more civilized. But even then, by its own design, it's also racist. So. I say all of that to say when people talk about lived experiences and the fact that, oh, I just couldn't possibly understand because I don't have that lived experience. You don't have to have the lived experience. I'm telling you of the experience right now. So what is blocking you from being able to empathize human to human? What is blocking you from being able to empathize if nothing more than your inherent and your um, socialized bigotry? Yeah. I mean, I think I want to just add a bit in, in the sense that you talked about that woman who sort of put on the nose and had to wear the hijab uh, to apparently experience what it was like to be, to be a Muslim woman for a day. And I think that I'm, I'm totally with you that that was totally like, you know, uncalled for Islamophobic racist as well. And I think what a lot of white people need to understand that it's, I mean, what I see from the community a lot of the times, obviously it's not all white people, but it's very prominent, right? is this idea of fetishizing the struggles, especially of black people. And this is part of the white savior mentality. When Black Lives Matter was happening, we had some major influencers coming out just to take pictures because, oh, now look, I'm a social activist. It's, a, it's trendy, you know, all this different stuff. And then you have different actors. I think one of these actors went to Uganda during this whole pandemic to you know, go and feed, you know, the, the starving children in Africa. And there was this food, I mean, there was literally like a, a picture of the guy giving uh, a child, you know, food in a dog bowl. And I'm like, like, really, what's going on here? Like, you know, taking all these different kinds of pictures. It's like our trauma and our struggles are not a holiday for you. They're not some sort of experience for you. It's not a roller coaster. Right, that you can simply go on and then just go off and say, okay, now I'm a totally changed person. And I think it's also hijacking this sort of idea of spirituality, which also roots from a lot of African communities of Ubuntu, for example, where it's like literally you see yourself, you are, you recognize your community by seeing yourself in other people. That's literally the basis of African ideology, but now we call it spirituality, spiritual awakening. I feel like all these different terms are just sort of being gentrified. And I'll also add a bit in relation to what you said about you know, European conception of human rights, all this different stuff. I mean, like, people also need to understand that they think that all these ideologies just came from Europe, and that was the end of the story. But no one will tell you the story of the Korokorn Foga and the Malian Empire, which was essentially laying down rights. It was a constitution that laid down the rights of the people of this empire, right, to tell them about how they wanted to live life as, a, as an empire in general. And they'd also, you know, talked about different topics, whether it was about women, whether it was about, you know, the uh, idea that people want people to be hardworking, etc. Right. So 
I think all of those things are very, very pertinent. I think for one thing that we'll sort of end with, right, is the diaspora and Twitter wars. And we've talked a lot about African identity and black identity as well, right? So um, what I'll wrap up with is sort of this question of like, you know, what are the main causes of the, the diaspora and wars, right? And I always tell people that it's divide and conquer. So the more we divide, we're just giving these white supremacists a chance to, to point out, right, that, that uh, or assert their white supremacy. And also, um, how does that link into this whole topic of, for example, some people have brought up the point of, oh, you know, because uh, apparently Africans weren't supporting Black Lives Matter, therefore, why should we support NSARS? This sort of, you know, diaspora and Twitter world that's currently going on still. So let me know your thoughts on that before we wrap up. No, I think that that's a great a way to end because that is, that will be our undoing. You know, that's either our undoing or the or the real kind of beginning of how we make it through this uh, th th this centuries, you know, long violence. The diaspora wars exist because we have internalized narratives about each other that doesn't serve us, but only serves to uphold white supremacy, right? So we, um, I know that before, you know, there would be, um, you know, native, you know, Africans who would say things like, oh, those Akatas over there, that's what they would call African-Americans. Oh, they're so mannerless. This is why things like that. I actually remember a friend saying to me at the time when, um, you know, I started getting really involved in what was happening in America with the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, police brutality. And she was just like, and she lives in America. And she was like, oh, no, 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 no. Notice how not um, hardly any of them are actually Nigerian. You know, they are African-Americans because they behave this differently. They don't, they don't um, re respect themselves in that way. Cut to now 2020 and her tone is totally changed because she's now understanding on a more visceral level what it means to be black in America. And after a few years, it levels out. You know, initially, you might see yourself as different. You know, they, you, they, you might be classified as, you know, different. Um, but eventually, that's not seen. That's not seen at all. You know, you're treated the exact same way. And we see it playing out, for instance, in the um, entertainment industry. Uh, why are these Black British people, actors coming over and taking jobs over here? There are so many aspects to why that happens. But again, it still comes down to this whole divide and conquer mentality, as you've mentioned. The, the, like, oh, let's go and bring the good blacks. Let's go and bring, bring the more well-behaved blacks over to come and do this thing because, you know, we can't control you. The narrative never stops. The way that um, um, African-Americans tend to view um, Africans and the way that Africans tend to view African-Americans is not actually through our own lens because if we took off the um, you know the tinted glasses of white supremacy we'd be able to see each other and see and actually be proud of how our lineages have managed to survive like atrocities when we compare the atrocities of colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade to anything else that's happened throughout history that we're told never forget never forget we realize just how much we have endured mass genocide over centuries right but someone like david starkey who deems himself an academic will say well it couldn't have been a, gen a genocide because why are there still so many damn blacks like people are vexed people are angry that we actually survived and this is why Aud um, audrey lord has litany for survival she said we were never meant to survive so the fact that we were never meant to survive yet not only have we survived we have given the globe like this globe this earth this planet we have gifted it with so much greatness 
in so many respects, in every literally every field we have gifted this globe with greatness yet instead of being able to celebrate that all we are seeing is each other through lenses created by white supremacist patriarchy which means that we look for the differences we look for the inconsistencies when all we see reflected back to us is the lack that we feel um when we compare ourselves to whiteness where everyone's holding everybody else up to what is measured literally by the metrics of whiteness so until we really deconstruct and dismantle that um, oppressive throne that's erected within us like Khalil Gibran says in the prophet we won't actually be able to come together as people because the moment that we do because we've seen glimpses of it throughout the summer with the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and all the marches that were going on around the world we've seen it with NSARS look at the power that we have of course you would not want that power to find its way home you would not want that power to find like all the other facets of it because of you know other facets of itself because if it were to this is why we always talk about fear of the black planet because if the power all of the facets were able to amalgamate there would be a, a revolution like no other but we'd also have a world that actually serves us best that serves all of us because we We've always, we existed from equitable cultures. So we will serve, you know, each other in a way that white, whiteness has not been able to. And that is to me the, the, the crux and the core of why diaspora wars exist because everyone is still in pain and everyone is still viewing each other through the lens of white supremacist patriarchy. Yeah, thank you so much for that powerful ending we're gonna actually have to wrap up but I think you're totally right about the you know the diaspora was I think my main just my thing uh, that I'll use to like sort of end off is just sort of we need to get rid of ignorance we need to start opening books we need to start listening to people uh, and we need to just realize that our point of view is not the only exclusive one and there's many different experiences as we've said in this podcast of blackness as many experiences of Africanity and um, Jane, do you have anything else to conclude with? I just want to say that you are so brilliant. It hurts, really. And um, it's been very refreshing hearing you speak about Blackness and, and Black in diaspora. And I'm just wondering, I know if I'm still correct, I went to your Instagram and I, I saw your um, Oracle deck. And I'm kind of wondering how would someone get that if the Oracle deck and the affirmation cards if someone wants to get it, how, how do they go about it? Oh, so the Oracle deck um, is pretty much exclusive to people who listen to the podcast because it's like a, it's like a journey that they would have been on. I released a deck a, a couple of years ago. They sold out. People really badgered me about releasing another set so of the same deck. So I did that and I said, never again. So those are done. And after two years, I designed a new deck or, and um, put that out. But I may, um, I, put for sale 444 of the decks and they went you know they've all sold out um so they're gone they're gone however I know that I've got a few left because I just felt um called to only sell 444 but I've got a few left so those who listen to the podcast they'll see that at some point I'll do little you know uh, competitions and little things and little in initiatives um you know in the next few months then they can probably grab themselves the deck that way as a prize yeah, thank you so, so much, Kalechi. We're honestly 
so privileged to be able to tap into your knowledge. And I think we've all gained a lot of perspectives and I'm sure the listeners have also been able to gain so much as well. Without further ado, thank you guys so much. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and we'll see you next week.